peace and calm and and uh, if you're just busy trying to get rid of things and uh, so then you, you can contemplate you know attachment to Whipple and Dunha and the result of it is what? And of course I can say it's suffering but don't don't believe that find out what kind of suffering is there's many different kinds of suffering so <clears throat> what does it feel like? you know in terms of your own intuitive awareness, what does it feel like to always kind of push away or deny or <clears throat> trying to get rid of things out of aversion or fear, resentment. And then 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 also be aware of when, when it is when you when you really understand something and you just set it letting it be, putting it putting it down out of wisdom so you're not you know that's, that's where this it's uh, something that you need to know in a direct way <coughs> like I, I I've contemplated like <coughs> Whipple would done like I'm very Whipple would done how type person <laughs> so I have a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of experience with it, and uh, and just just you know, I'm trying to get rid of Whipple Dunhat. You know, you go around in circles. You know, you think, I'm trying to get rid of Whipple with Dunhat. Whipple with Dunhat. Not a matter of getting rid, but understanding it. What is it? What is desire? Grasping. What does it feel like? And then you, so you're actually observing the desires rather than just going on some kind of theoretical view that you shouldn't that you shouldn't let go of all desires. And with Dunham, I get this image of, for me, my mind is always just pushing away from me. I had a real, like a strong image in my mind one time. I just saw myself going like this to life, always kind of pushing things away from me. And as a, as a kind of general <coughs> reaction. And you can see, just see, I could just see almost visually, you know, in my mind. I was just sitting there like this. I wasn't like doing that. But it was, I could, in my mind, I could see myself just kind of in a state of tension, always kind of pushing things away from me. And, uh, and I could see the, the suffering, you know, the stress, why I felt, why I'd get so exhausted and so stressed. With, with, you know, if I was living my life always with this tension of pushing away. And that's just a very subjective uh, kind of insight. But it, it was, it was through uh, investigating that, feeling it, you know. What does it really feel like to, to resist? everything or try to get rid of things 
not want things to be the way they are. Trying to control everything. What is it? What does it feel like? And I can see how much of my emotional life is was just conditioned on that. You know, just uh, fear, resistance, not wanting to know, avoidance, denying things, defensiveness getting defensive, rationalizing, justifying. And so you know, those kind of emotional habits are just creating tension in the you know, you used to wonder sometimes why you'd be so exhausted when you when you hadn't been doing anything all day. Just sitting around and then but even in sitting around there's a lot of this Denial resistance going on. <laughs> Feel more fatigued than climbing the Himalayas. Stephen, <laughs> <laughs> um, a slightly related question, and I have to do with um, use of meditation objects like and silence, because it seems to me that uh, often when I use the sound of silence, I can turn towards it as an active feel for what comes up, you know, as a kind of turning away from other things, and it, and it can be, you know, how to you, know, do you see ways that that can be both kind of reconditioning your aversion <laughs> at the same time as you know, maybe being a more positive kind of releasing yourself from the violence. Yeah, that's that's where it's really important to know what what you're doing it for. Because <clears throat> I mean, I, I used to, I've tried using sound of silence just as a way of getting rid of conditioned things. But then, then they tend to, then they, 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 you know, it, it tends to, put, so that they still tend to keep kind of hanging in there, you know, like, you know, I found anyway. If, if I, if I use Whippoorwood Dunha for the sound of silence, then it's like I'm, I'm actually, uh, you know, attaching to these things I want to get rid of. But they do, they kind of still around and they keep kind of, you know, coming back, and you keep trying to get rid of them. So, but then I then I change the attitude more towards seeing the sound of silence more like as a as giving space for those things. You know, so rather than as a something to to annihilate, something to let them be what they are. So, so and then it's like you know, I found it when I start relating to space. And silence, emptiness is a is like the the infinite uh, infinity, and then there's room for everything in that in infinity. There's no nothing uh, doesn't belong in it. I mean, everything belongs in in the silence. So then it, it then I can uh, and I find that helps to uh, 
to be able to get perspective on, say, emotional feelings and things that are, you know, that you may, that you may, you might be resisting otherwise or trying to get rid of. So it's like learning to look at it in a, in a, um, in a way that, that, uh, because it does work that way, I find, like it's the sound of silence, it does, it's a background, so it's, it, it, it embraces the condition. So, so then I can actually, uh, if I'm in whatever emotion I'm experiencing, then I can actually really feel that emotion in the silence of my mind. You know, it's like it really, it's no longer theoretical, it's very practical. So you, you're just, you're really feeling that, you know, I, I stop thinking, because sound of silence helps to stop the thinking process. The, the kind of energy that's still left after thought ceases and the kind of mood that still hangs and lingers in the mind, I can accept in that silence. And so it's like a real acceptance of, of emotional feeling with perspective on it, with a, with, a, with a patient, uncritical acceptance of it, then it, then you see it, it, uh, it changes, you know, it dissolves, uh, dissipates. And then I can, uh, and then like, like now the, the silence is so strong with me, that, and, and also because, say, I've spent so many years investigating these things that, that there's an accumulated kind of wisdom there that knows that you, you know, knows immediately how to deal with, with whatever. And they're much more, uh, kind of spontaneous. But, I, you know, one has to experiment a lot with <laughs> with this because you're actually, you know, you've got the theories maybe and and all that, but you, but you, but the actual practice is in like, you know, is in the experimentation with it, find out what works, or if it's not working, why, like if you think. Like, like if you can see sound of silence as a kind of cop-out, you know, getting rid of the world and going into the unconditioned and things like that, that can, that can be another attachment, you know, that idea uh, that one is attached to is, is, uh, is influencing the actual experience. So it doesn't work all that well, you know, you, can, you get, you know, it might work for a little while, in some ways, but basically, because based on ignorance and attachment, it's not you can't it's not going to you know be something that you can sustain till you actually get it right. And this is where where like 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 I felt like with desire, just done the word done her. 
is ignorance and desire. At least these words in the English language are are always, you know, like something bad or they have pejorative connotations. So you, so there's a kind of natural, a kind of reaction to thinking that get rid of them. You know, you should get rid of desire and ignorance. So, so sometimes our practice may be motivated from the desire to get rid of ignorance and to get rid of desire. So that's where to, to, to and if you if that's your kind of basic your your modus operandi, then then you and you don't see it, then it then the result is always going to be some kind of suffering from that. Because you haven't really what you're starting from is, is from the desire to get rid of desire without seeing it. But if you actually begin to just notice from right now you know, any just what 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 is what do I feel right now? And how do I how do I regard meditation? What what am I meditating for anyway? What is the reason? And and uh, I can kind of ask myself, and you know, I can come up with things. I want to get rid of desires. I want to. I don't want to. I don't want to be ignorant. I want to get enlightened. That kind of thing. So then, so then, uh, but I can actually, when I question like this, I can actually see those those things. And I want to get rid of ignorance. So it sounds good, you know. Sounds like a thing to be. You know, if you're going to grasp anything, that's a good one to grasp. But <laughs> that sounds like it's right. But actually, it is. It is a condition based on the assumption of a permanent self, and I am this per the five khandas, and and I'm unenlightened. And I've got to do something to get enlightened. But if you if you in the, with awareness, then you shouldn't get. Right, and you see that also as a condition of the mind. So like, like awakened awareness, you, you're right in the moment before you become someone who's trying to meditate in order to get enlightened. You see what I mean? So you're kind of, you're, you're in a, that's where the, the emptiness, or the, that pure state of pure awareness. You can even pick up on on maybe your very altruistic motivations for being a monk or a nun. Which doesn't mean there's anything wrong with that, but it, with those motivations, but if, if blindly attached to, then no matter how highly motivated you are, it's going to end up in some kind of despair or disappointment as a result. I wonder what, what, in terms of experience, what is the, what's the, what's the difference between intention and craving somehow? Sometimes in, in the text, when the Buddha describes uh, the condition arising of experience, he goes from either arises, there's contact and feeling, and perception, and then intention, and then craving. So it kind of seems that craving 
is a certain type of intention which is informed by ignorance rather than not knowing clearly. And I was trying to look into my mind to what is actually craving, how does it actually feel. And sometimes I would notice like intention, like sitting here and and just uh, there's a slight movement in the mind, like an inclination towards something, like to move my leg because it hurts or something like that. So this kind of inclination that you feel like intention. And then I would notice craving and uh, again, it's the same sort of inclination, but with like craving for sensory experience wanting to go and, and eat something good, something that I really like, that would be the assumption accompanying this intention that that is going to really satisfy me. And then that would not be the perception of impermanence. So I think what makes intention into craving is this accompanying assumption that that thing is going to be permanently satisfying. Yeah, you can see that with, uh, you know, like lust to give the, you know, like greed and lust, they kind of give that impression of uh, that what when you get what you want, you're going to be really happy with it. And, uh, and therefore, like like, lust and and greed are very blinding because of that. You know, they just they uh, you know that why why even very intelligent people when they get caught in in lust can do the most stupid things. Like President Clinton was Monica, <laughs> and he's quite intelligent man, and yet completely blinded by lust. You know, doing very foolish things. Uh, you know that hurt his wife, his family, his country, and everything. Out of not out of intention to hurt, but out of just the blindness of that of of sexual desire, because that kind of that kind of like lust like that, it just takes you over, and you don't think about anything but but the the, the uh, gratifying that hurt, that feeling, and. Uh, so just noting that, how, how, like greed of any sort has this, where the critical mind is, uh, is very, uh, you know, it doesn't operate in that state. That's why, like, the supagamatan, when you're celibate, is to contemplate the unattractiveness of the body, because, uh, because the uh, to be more critical and see the not not to hate the body but to to not be caught in the the, the tendency to see it as beautiful which arouses lust and blinds you to see it in terms of its uh, non-beauty isn't uh, to create aversion but to create develop a more critical awareness is to counterbalance the the blind blindness that lust but like, like some uh, sangha pole in the in the eightfold path, some uh, ditti, some uh, sangha pole, 
Let's sometimes translate it as intention, coming from right understanding. <coughs> and so that that uh, that makes a lot of sense because then you've got samaditi and then samatangapo is a kind of the next one that comes. So you, you're intending your mind out of right understanding. Your intention then is to do what is right. Like then a sila comes and right speech, right action, right livelihood, but in terms of practical experience, as uh, worldly human experience, and then sama, vayamo, samasati, samasamadhi. But the, uh, like, like uh, I see, like when, 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 I, when I became a monk, then my intention was the realization of nibbana. So I've always used that as the, uh, as the, uh, because the, yeah, I made it from, you know, even at the time that I ordained, I wouldn't, so I had that much wisdom, you know, in terms of real insight or anything, but, but, uh, but that, but still, there was this, there was enough there to, to let me do it, to get me into the robe, and then the, then, then there was uh, uh, right intention. So I wasn't going to use a monastic life. I ne- I've never intended to use monastic life, say, for personal uh, success. Or, you know, to me, it's always the whole point of monastic life has been the realization of nibbana. So, so even though during the 33 years that I've been a monk, the uh, you know I haven't I sometimes haven't always uh, you know I've had other kind of feelings in that you know and and, and uh, forget sometimes would forget my intention but uh, but I but then because I've made that in the beginning I, I it was always I couldn't forget it completely and so I've never. Never saw the monastic life as, as any anything other than the, the vehicle for realizing the helpful vehicle for realizing nibbana, and then then to keep reminding myself of that also, because you know you can get other you can like coming to England for example. Was the intention to come to England to spread Buddhism in Europe or to realize nibbana? And then that, that I had to keep very clear. Was I coming to England, to Europe, to set up monasteries, to teach Buddhism, to bring the Dhamma to the West, to set up monasteries where men and women can ordain and all that, or to realize the mountains? So I always kept that clear in my mind. That even in the midst of it all, setting up monasteries and and bringing Buddhism to the West wasn't my intention. It was, I trusted in the, in the original intention of realizing Nibbana. And then the rest would, you know, if, if that, I trusted that if, if I kept to that, then the, whatever good things would, would come out of that would be a benefit to, to the people around or the society I'm living in. <coughs> where I think some, you know, like a couple of other, the 
founder of the English Tongue of Trust. I never knew him, but uh, I've heard enough about him. <laughs> and uh, he was quite, uh, you know, a very uh, brilliant man and many gifts. And he, he had a lot of intent, like to spread Buddhism in England, to set up the English English Sangha Trust, you know, like a idea of, you know, English monks and, and uh, English Sangha, they even named it English Sangha Trust, and the idea of, of uh, then people weren't thinking in terms of European or even of British, you know. So it was, it was uh, England, England, and then uh, and then he would do, he would, because he could, he was a good at organizing and, and kind of initiating and organizing things, he could get things started. And he'd, he'd go, he'd get ordained in Thailand and he'd come back and then he did it several times and then he'd, he'd, uh, you know, he'd publish a magazine, he'd give lecture tours, he'd go up to Manchester and he'd, then little groups around and he'd, and he'd, and he was quite charismatic, I guess, because he'd inspire many people, and p- people would ordain, men would ordain with him. And then he'd, then he'd fall apart and disrobe. <laughs> so, I mean, it was, uh, you know, I don't know what, I, I don't know him, I can't really say, but, you know, so, so much of what he did was, was to me like an intention too, you know, his, his love of Buddhism, it was a good enough intention. And, you know, trying to establish a Sangha in the West was, you know, certainly inspiring. And, uh, you know, I'm not, not diminishing that kind of thing. But I felt that he, where he probably, where he might have, this is my speculation, where he might have messed it up was he didn't have the real right intention. I mean, I don't know, but, but so in, uh, when I came to England, George Sharp warned me about all this. He told me about the burnout and the failures of the English Sangha Trust for 20 years <laughs> before I came. So I, I was, and, 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 you know, I kind of made that very clear in my mind when I did come to, to try to hold to that as my main as my intention for, that I made when I began the monastic life. And, uh, and I like the result of that. <laughs> and, and it doesn't mean, and I could do established monasteries, things like this, but it, it's never been, and, and then, you know, I can see like how much suffering you can get from the establishing monasteries. And how you know how uh, when you when you get involved with other people, a lot of people, and 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 you get put yourself in a position like Upachaya and Ajahn and all these kind of things. How you're you're influencing people's lives so much, and uh, and it gets scary, you know, because you if it's just based on. Uh, on good ideas and altruism, then it, it really, you know, it, it's quite scary on that level. But this is where you have to trust in that intention of realizing nibbana 
and uh, because otherwise it's it, you know something in me would be quite I mean because my nature is would like to to uh, is a, is a, with a, a hermetic uh, type of person uh, it would easily I mean I could easily I would you know sometimes really regretted doing this coming to the West and I really regretted it and uh, because of uh, all the misery of it and then uh, and then uh, then the and then I've you know I've been through that realm but then getting back to the intention trusting in that and keep Keep, keep moving in that direction and keep learning uh, from, the, from the experiences from the mistakes and the conditions and the successes and then then uh, it, it, it's because the intention is right then then uh, I feel that, that what's happened is I've had no intention to to do it for personal needs or personal gain. So I don't feel that I've cheated anybody or I've presented myself in a false way. But uh, but the uh, or that I've done anything you know, I've made I've made plenty of mistakes, but that isn't out of that's more of just through uh, not knowing all the, you know, just through the process of learning, <clears throat> learning as you go along. Could you also say the part in Jacob's um, suggestion of that uh, the way the perception you feel connection to desire, that you know, what's, what seems to be being inducted in that process is on one hand you could say that's the object of desire, but also it's a it's a kind of gradual increasing of the intensity of the sense of self. You know, when there's a perception sense of self it's not the strong intention is or a sense of self desire, you know, the the object of desire is is you're kind of contemplating this this relationship of self to the object and where the whole point of the the aspiration of nibbana is kind of the antithesis of, of the kind of the self-object relationship, you know, the whole anatta versus atta, and so the desire, that desire relationship always has the kind of at the back of it, the subject of it is I want this thing, and it's, it's feeding the whole kind of delusion of the I factor, and you know, so you can kind of contemplate the, the kind of the, the I factor. Right? Compared to you know, the aspiration for nibbana, this it's not I want nibbana. It's, it's more just trying to something about this according with with a truth. It's not an I based truth. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you take that whole sequence of perception and you get into to, to and birth, aging, death, the, 
the, the, the eye factor is kind of intense down on the, the first day she's dead. <laughs> <laughs> mm. but, but if I were to come on, I cannot, I cannot really work or, or yeah, I cannot really avoid the eye factor. So because I'm always coming from the conditioning is so strong, so that let me demolish about the sound of silence, you know, that, that whatever <coughs> comes up, we can bring to the silence this kind of longing for something, which comes from, from or you can express it, express it as having lost this one, you know, there's, there's always this gap. And, and just this longing, to, to investigate that with the sound of time. I, I find that very helpful. Yes, very, uh, yeah, I, very good. <laughs> Longing, yeah, that, like I, for, for a long time, I just felt heartache. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, it would actually ache <laughs> here. <laughs> and I would, uh, uh, and I and I would uh, you know it just seemed to to hang around me this, this, and it was and it would bring up that longing you know and so many you know for some kind of uh, for something to, to 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 fill in that to to satisfy that heartache <coughs> and so in a, all the pop music about heartache and broken heart and and longing and all that I could really I began to really see that, feel that, you know, as a, and but then as I stopped trying to analyze it and think about it, but more or less accept that feeling in the silence. And just and, and just kind of let it be what it is, you know, not not do anything with it, but just kind of appreciate it even you know because it's something I could bear actually I found out longing and, and loneliness and heartache something I could bear and in the silence and then then it seemed to then for me it's, it's I don't have that now but it, I remember it uh, it was there for a long time <laughs> I mean, because I used to be a very cerebral person, so I didn't even notice that. You know, it was it was still probably influencing my behavior, but it was uh, I never, never noticed anything below my head really very much. 
And I just, uh, I remember when I started doing yoga, when I was 25, I started doing Hatha yoga, and uh, and I was so, so, uh, you know, so unaware of my body, so completely unaware of, of it, because I was such, I'd, I'd lived in a world of ideas. And then doing these hearty yoga postures, you know, suddenly you've had to bring awareness into, you know, where are my feet, where are my feet? And, you know, I, you know, I remember trying to do a headstand at first. You know, one of the postures was a headstand. I, was, I didn't think I could do it because I thought about it and I, and I just couldn't imagine how you could put your head on the floor and lift lift your hips up with your, and put your legs up me. I just couldn't see how I could do that. You know, when I, when I saw the posture. And, uh, and then I, when I actually got into doing that, I found it was quite easy, you know, it wasn't difficult at all. But it, but I remember thinking, I don't think I could ever do that. And then being surprised just by doing it, that I could. <laughs> Or uh, this kind of thing was bringing attention down to to the to the to the physical aspect, but that on the emotional level, that was more. I wasn't very emotionally aware till I till uh, I became a monk, where I started having to look at you know emotional. Uh, and learning how to look at emotions was was a challenge because my tendency was to not want to be bothered with like finding that I didn't want to I, I didn't I liked the Bariati Dhamma a lot and the uh, and I liked the silence I liked the getting into tranquil states but I didn't like a lot of my emotional feelings so there was a lot of whippoorwadanha, just suppression of emotion. And that's where community life has been <laughs> so useful, is it brings up all your emotion. You don't know how much you've all helped me. Thank you. 
where intention seems to come in, and it's pretty in a subtle, it's like I would like some help in looking at intention, is um, and where I think I can sort of get to know it, but I don't know how to talk about it. You know, it doesn't seem to be an object or anything. It's, it's like a subtle affirmation, if I can say it that way. So, where I can sort of, where I think I can sort of see it, is I catch myself, you know, watch my, see myself doing something. And let's say I didn't, maybe I wasn't aware I was doing, I didn't have the full awareness of it. And then, maybe something I would wish I would do, you know, if I was being more careful, do it a little differently. Let's say not. Let's say there's a feeling and I start brushing and I thought, oh, maybe there's a bug there. You don't want to go around killing the bug. And then, so where the intention, so then, let's say I affirm, don't care. (laughs) And then that would be an affirmation of being willing to kill a little bug. Or I could pull back, or I could be unsure. But so that that seems. But it, it, but, it, but there's no. I, I don't catch for myself. I don't catch any phenomenon, any mental phenomenon that I would call an intention. It's just like going from going from. I mean, much of what I do, I intend. Like I'm intending to talk right now. So I, I certainly believe that. But where I, I think can be seen for me is where I go from maybe where I think there is none to where there may be one. That's sort of borderline. And all I ever sense there is kind of a subtle affirming. Well, like, like say, uh, not killing insects is uh, not violence, is the intention. So it's, it's, this is how I use it anyway. So, so I have, when you, when you become a monk, you, your intention is to not kill anything intentionally. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that, that's my intention, not to kill. Uh, so then, uh, sometimes my, because I, 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 my, my life on this planet is such that I, I, kill something, but it's not, but I have no intent, but I can see, like if, like a mosquito or something, wanting to kill it, mm-hmm. you know, now I don't have that, but I mean, before, when I first became a monk in Thailand, you know, I just hated the mosquitoes, and, and I wanted them, mm-hmm. I'd to have had mosquito sprays and things, and just get rid of them, uh, so there was a desire to get rid of them, but because my intention was non-violent, then, then that would, that would keep me from actually doing it. Even though I feel the, maybe the desire to kill them, I wouldn't because of my intention. So even if you're scratching something, is your intention to, to ease the scratch, ease the itch or to kill the, the bug, you know? This is, well I would, you know, this is where you can get confused if you're trying to be too, too exact. Or like, like in regards to, to eating meat. 
you know, is your intention to, uh, you know, to, to eat, to be, to, to, you know, to encourage the slaughter of animals so you can eat meat, or to eat what food you're given, or things like this. So, I mean, because the Buddha put so much emphasis on intention, rather than on, where, say, the Jains, the Nagantas at the same time of the Buddha, they were, uh, they, they felt that even if you accidentally stepped on an ant or something, it was a, a immoral act, a violent act that's karmic. And uh, so that's why the Jains would, you know, they'd, they'd wear masks and they'd, and they'd have to sweep in front of them. You can still see this in India. Because uh, they're so kind of obsessed with, with non-violence. Uh, as as a physical act, you know, that that you are, it's bad karma if you even accidentally kill something. And then it gets into, you know, should you take antibiotics if you have an infection, or it gets down to where you can hardly survive because uh, you you're, you're so worried about possible unseen insects or, or germs or things in the, in the, in the water. But uh, the Buddha put it down in always on a level of intention. So like in, in uh, Thailand, we'd, we'd strain the water with just uh, some kind of coarse enough filter, like a cloth or something. Uh, and, it, and, it, and you weren't, if you could see anything in the water, things like this. Uh, and also, uh, to not, you know, that that thing was on, whether you intended, uh, you know, the the a matter of, of whether it was uh, sinful or demeritorious or whatever it was was whether if you intended to kill the animal, and then you did, and I mean, if you desired to kill it, and then you your intention was to kill, and you killed it, then that would be demerit would be a black mark on your record would be bad karma and then that oh, okay. yeah. I was, I'm sorry I was just trying to I mean I want to follow up with it, but I don't want to change the topic it's the same topic I was just going to say that like one of the ways that I've looked at the difference between intention is to see the difference between intention and attention and one of the images that has come to my mind, which is sometimes helpful for me to differentiate, is attention is like the landscape of what one uh, experiences. So, like for example, when driving a car, one changes the landscape. One has sights or sounds or touch or taste. That's where the attention rests. But the intention is the directing of attention to certain areas. And so if you look at the difference between like the, the, what one sees in driving a car and the actual driver of the car, then that's a, a, like for me it's a useful metaphor for the difference between these two areas of attention and intention. I was just trying to come back actually to the, to the felt experiential difference between inclination and intention. And it seems to me you use intention in a couple of ways. I, mean, I don't want big about it. But intention can be like, I intend, I intend not to, not to harm any sentient creatures. 
No, I make that intention. I mean, I have that intention. Um, most of the time, it's not part of my experience. So that's one kind of intention. I would take it. I would think that's what you mean when you say you came in with the intention to realize the bottom. So most of the time you're not going around thinking you're trying to realize the bottom. <laughs> you know, you're you're living your life, but that's the over. And then there's a kind of intention that one can experience in the moment, and it doesn't have to be the intention to realize nirvana or, you know, I'm not thinking of, of attention versus intention. I'm thinking of just intention, perhaps distinguishing it from inclination or is that little well, like, it's, and it seems to me that it's just it's, it's just a subtle affirmation. Well, like, the intention to realize the mind is the big intention. Yeah. The purpose of being a mind. But I was asking about moral And then, then say, moral precepts, is it like the moral precepts in Vinaya, is, is around action and speech. So that the intention, say, of, of Vinaya is the harmlessness, uh, unselfishness, uh, um, respect for the life of others, other people's property, and so forth, and, and fewness of need. So, so the so but so that's why the the vinaya say is a is a training in you're learning these standards for reflection, so that you can you can be aware. Your intention is to live within the restraint of these of this vinaya and then you can see because that's a, a quite a deliberate rational intention it's not just a you know you don't do that usually in a state of inspiration it's quite a it's quite quite a, a rational thing that you're doing and then uh, then it gives you like because of that like uh, then you then you can get some perspective on your emotional reactions to it. So like like you know like you can because I my intention is non-violent doesn't mean I never feel violent, but it means that because of that intention I've made quite rationally. Then when emotionally I feel violent. I can, I have some perspective on it and, and, and uh, try to refrain from acting on those violent impulses, you see. So, and then I can actually be, be aware of this, this violent feeling as, uh, you know, in terms of Dhamma and that, rather than seeing it as, uh, in terms of self, rather than putting it always in the context of personal fault. And then that, and then they, uh, that's where, if you don't have any sila standard, and it's more like the idea of spontaneity, just do what you feel like, then, you know, that, that I wouldn't try, I mean, I, I, I'm not evolved enough to work from that level. I mean, I actually needed 
the uh, a, a level of of basic moral guidance and restraint in order to to see to to get some perspective on my own uh, emotional habits. And then, then the intention with the human realm is influenced by uh, the, uh, like the jadana or the, you know, like, like say moral, uh, moral restraint, uh, which animals don't. I mean, they have, they're more, they're instinctual. But morality is definitely a human uh, achievement. So, so you, you know, you can, uh, because we have the same instinctual nature as animals, you know, basic instincts are not that, that any different from most animals. But they, but we, but our jada, our, our jadana is in terms of 
of say bana di bata that that influences because we certainly can feel like murdering somebody but we don't now you can do it out of just fear of being punished you know there's one in there there's a kind of restraint that's made through punishing people if they do something bad and so you're good you refrain from doing things because you don't want to be punished and that's that's oftentimes what like the law system is based on you know capital punishment and putting people in prison and, and or or you know hitting them or be, putting them torturing them if they do something bad but then uh, in terms of uh, say uh, so you can you can control people through fear which is still like a demeaning process to, you know you're not bringing the full human potential into into the life but where the human potential is is uh, where you can decide like to ask for the five precepts you know <laughs> kind of saying okay give me the five precepts please you know ask three times uh, and then uh, and then the then banadibata is is there to refrain from intentionally say on its coarsest level of murdering somebody and then uh, then it uh, and that influences your your uh, your conscious experience because you it doesn't mean you're not going to ever have that feeling but it means you're not going to act on it where if you if you never like I remember seeing this Vietnam film um, called Return to My Lai where they showed it here BBC made a, a excellent film about in 1968 the American troops went into this village in Vietnam and killed everything inside in there uh, women, children, water buffaloes chickens, everything and uh, and then uh, and they they just went on the rampage, you know, for no they uh, and there weren't any kind of enemy in this village or any reason. There was no reason why they needed to do that in terms of that there was uh, you know real real enemy there. And then uh, and that was such a shock, you know, to to the Americans who felt that they would ne- their boys would never do anything like that. Then in 1988 the BBC went back to that same village and and tried to find and tried to find trace the lives of some of the uh, veterans that were involved in it. And it was very interesting just to see uh, like one veteran uh, uh, was an American black man who he was sitting at a table and he had all these medicines on his table and he was he was suicidal he had a book a scrapbook of all the people he, and he said he, every day the people that he's murdered come up and visit him in his mind and he's absolutely bonkers you know and he has to take all these drugs and he's suicidal he's trying to kill himself and uh, he said probably by the time this film is shown I'll be dead hopefully you know and he said he could see every the face of every person he killed and that was 20 years later and then then uh, there's another man not American black man uh, that was in that same scene 
but he had some kind of moral perspective on it. So he said, he said, I know killing's wrong, and I wasn't going to do it. <laughs> so, so he had, he had, you know, he had some kind of moral status in his mind, and he he refused to participate in it. And then you could see the difference. You know, twenty years later, this man was, uh, you know, healthy-looking, happy kind of. I mean, rather pleasant-looking person. You know, you'd, you'd like to have him into dinner and that. The other one, you kind of <laughs> you know, you feel sorry for him, but this is, this is a good example of, of just what, what, some kind of moral, moral, some kind of immoral integrity it does, because we're all capable of doing atrocious acts. You know, I could see I can't say that I'm not capable of committing atrocious acts. I've certainly seen that potential in myself. But I would never intentionally do that because of, for one thing, I, I can reflect on it. And also I'm, my, my aim is to realize Nibbana. My, <laughs> and then, my, and then, then I also can reflect on the results of just, minor infringements of little rules like in a monastic life you know and, and the, <laughs> you know you suffer enough over rather trivial little things in monastic life and imagine if you actually had to live with the memories of you killed so many people you know and then and then also this is this is where you know what I feel lack is lacking in the in the international scene. It, I was trying to kind of make agreements and and kind of uh, modus vivendi kind of uh, compromises, but they're uh, but they're not uh, they're not, not morality is not not an issue really. And and so you, you know, you, you see it. It's just you have kind of temporary truces, and is about best you can get. But there's no kind of kind of movement, and on an international level, to agree to to, to raise the standard of moral commitment. And uh, and to me, this would be, you know, quite a because this is the this is the the one of the great gifts of our humanity is that we can we can decide not to kill we can decide we're not going to intentionally kill anything where where the cat you can't apply that moral that moral precept to the cats because they can't make that decision you can frighten them you can you can spank them and hit them when they kill a mouse or something and then they're, they're kind of maybe refrain from doing it when you're around but, but that's, that's not because, because they don't have the ability to choose that and you see this is, this is, the, this is the one of the great uh, uh, virtues of, of our humanity is, is almost pushed aside for say material development and uh, science and 
then that kind of thing is, is kind of held up in, in, in material progress is the, is the aim of most people these days. But that's where, just like in, in Vinaya, you're training, you can use it, Vinaya as a, just a kind of, I gotta keep the rules, otherwise I'm wrong kind of thing. You know, so you, as a kind of reward and punishment mechanism. And that's one way of looking at Vinaya. Or you can see it as a way of training, of, of using uh, restraint and discipline and, and that to, to, be, to be able to access your own kind of uh, character hat tendencies and emotions and, and learning to kind of surrender into the simple restraint of, say, Vinaya, just from monastic life, just you know, like the good result of monastic life is where you just kind of rest in the simplicity of it. It, it loses that sense of this vast network of rules that you've got to keep into a into just a very uh, simple and pleasant way to live one's life. This is how I find it. Where at first, I remember at Wapap home just feeling suffocated sometimes by the by the uh, vinaya because you know you know. It's, uh, did I do something wrong, or was that was this a dukkata or a bajitya or whatever? And you kind of juggling with all the names. It sounds so complicated, and 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 you kind of worry and 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 uh, and make it into a burden. But if you train in it, then it then actually it becomes it simplifies everything rather than complicates. When you enlist in the military, did you ever think design, you want to travel around the world that you mentioned? Did you ever think that you support the military, the people who are going to kill the others? Did that idea occur in your mind? Of supplying things to the military? Well, in, in my, that, when, during the Korean War, the, um, I, was, I still wasn't sure in my mind about whether, I just assumed that America was doing the right thing, you see. I didn't really um, question it that much. And then, uh, so I, I didn't I didn't I didn't have a, a strong kind of moral position on the matter and and one and, and after the Second World War I remember uh, then the whole kind of uh, propaganda turned against the Soviet Union so then then you were and, and the whole aim of of the United States was to stop communism. And uh, and so you you had a lot of this uh, this um, feeling that you know America was was there to stop this uh, invent this kind of invincible force called communism. 
So there was, even though I didn't believe it completely, I hadn't, I hadn't really come to terms with it. But when I did go in the military, I chose a non-violent way of being in the military. I became a medic. Because then you didn't have to carry weapons. You didn't have to shoot anybody. You see, so if you were, in those days, you could be, uh, you could, uh, you could help people. Uh, and and be in the military without having to uh, get involved in the killing of anyone. So that that kind of eased the the kind of moral questions also becoming a medic. But uh, I'm, I, uh, it's amazing what happened after uh, with the Vietnam War. Because that—that—that uh, that, that is that was the most interesting war, I think, because it—it you could see like the United States, it had to really question its whole raison d'être for being in there, you know, rather than just assume. Americans had this awful conceit of that we were on, that God was on our side, so whatever we did was right. And then suddenly you're, you're you know, you're in the Viet, they're in Vietnam doing all kinds of terrible things. Because it was in Vietnam that, that the My Lai massacre, you know, I mean, I remember I was in the monastery in Thailand when that happened, but, but I heard about it in the shop of Americans that, that because American had what they call the John Wayne mentality American soldiers were all heroic they'd go into the village and save all the old ladies give sweets to the little kiddies <laughs> and kill the enemy and that was it and then it, but, but then it was you know there was rape there was all the ugly things that the enemy does, the Americans were doing. <laughs> so then, what? What is? Uh, you know, that that was uh, kind of an awakening, a shock that awakened. I felt was a very strong part of the United States, uh, kind of maturing after Vietnam. Yeah. yeah. And in order to uh, bring justice to the world, the captain in charge of doing that, you know, put into uh, trial. And and now you can be conscientious objector without any, you know, like like Vietnam War. There, American men were. Refusing to participate in a way that, that never happened in any in the Korean War or Second World War. But now, after the media, the country is so sophisticated and so I don't know how this is done, but it's, it's so closely aligned with um, government and military objectives that you don't. Here of dissension, like before the Iraq War, when we were here at the monastery, 
before we came, even though there were huge protests of 15,000, 20,000 people. The front pages of the, even the liberal newspapers would show a man watering his lawn. And there was a little article, maybe on page 16, that was four paragraphs. And so there's the self-righteousness that was, I think, really questioned, shaken, when we became, a lot of us changed our lives in that period because of that. I, my sense is, is that self-righteousness is lifted back in <laughs> full steam. <laughs> Even though there maybe are options for people that are more alert, but it's, it's a pretty self-righteous place. America. Yeah, but, but also there's a lot of questioning, too, isn't there? They're not in the kind of, you know, they're not in the kind of political positions yet, but, and I don't know. But yeah. I, I assume that, because I, I haven't lived there for so many years. And I certainly think the people that you would be inclined to meet in the United States are going to be those that are, you know, not the moral majority of the world. <laughs> but there is just a, I don't know, did you say this was true? There's just kind of this, I mean, I remember when I was teaching at the university, I mean, even people that were questioning, had an inclination to question, <laughs> were nonetheless felt compelled to, um, to get on the consumer bandwagon one way or another. So I think that's the, the ethos. And if military action is part of that, as long as it's, as long as it's pictured properly, right? <laughs> you know, as long as the missiles are just sort of going in, you know. Well, you see, as long as there's no moral integrity, you can never fully trust anything. I mean, they're like, because the United States only quotes morality when, it, when it's expedient. But doesn't oh doesn't doesn't isn't really morally integrity isn't integrity doesn't have integrity uh, so that you you're kind of always suspicious you know of whatever they're doing uh, so you you know like like now with this banana war uh, you know between the European common market and the United States and you you suspect that basic suspicion is that the United States is being pressured by people in the you know that the, the American because America doesn't grow bananas but they have investments in companies and then that they're and that they they want to um, make as much money as they can and they haven't been able to kind of push the the banana growers in the Caribbean out of the picture, like they, they can if they get their way. And so, you know, even though they put it on a kind of moral basis or, or free, you know, rights and agreements and trade, trade ideas, you can't help but really suspect them of being, you know, only interested in American, uh, the American economy, the expense of these little islands in the Caribbean, you know. It's the biggest fear you have. And you don't want to feel like that, but because you don't trust. But it's true. 
in China is a good example of this. I mean, the only time I think the U.S. government might recently has threatened to take away special trade status of China. The only time that was threatened was when the Chinese were producing too many CDs. You know, pirate CDs where they just produce them on their own song. But Tiananmen Square, Tibet atrocities have never raised the specter of the threat of taking away special status. But when they were producing a good that the companies in our country had an interest in, that... You see, that's where, like, a moral base gives you some standard. You know, it doesn't mean you always agree, because you can certainly, in many other ways, disagree with things. But on a moral level, at least there's a, a level of trust. And, and that's what I see is, you know, the, the way to progress, as a, say, as a global village or whatever terms you like to use. Because we're, I don't think, you know, when you get into religious mor morality, then of course, it's tremendous agreement on just basic moral, basic moral standards of every, on, and with every religion. So it's not like undermining any, any religion. And, and then, uh, also you feel, uh, then there would be a, a level of trust that you could build uh, the rest from that, that now you, you just don't you don't trust it you don't you can't trust the the affluent Western world and uh, much less the rest of it. But this is this is uh, but then morality you see in the western eyes is like uh, morality has been presented in such a harsh way that it it doesn't it's a commandment and it's a and you're punished if you're immoral you know it's, it's a kind of uh, you know uh, you're, you're kind of forced into, you know, morality has this sense of, of being thrown, pushed on you and you're going to be punished if you, if you're immoral and, and, and you're going, and you're going to be banished, put in prison. But, but like, like you can see, like for me, the Buddhist approach always seems so, so beautiful where you ask for it and you, and your, your idea is that it's precepts rather than commandments where you, you're not, God isn't commanding you to keep, be moral, but you're actually asking out of your own wisdom to, to, have, to help live a moral life. You take the five precepts or whatever. Well then, that's like, that's like kind of a beautiful, that, that's putting the responsibility onto you. Then you're, then you're, you're, you're suddenly kind of feeling, I'm now responsible for what I do. Rather than I've got to do good because I'll be punished if I'm bad. This is a different. It's so much more kind of dignified and, and kind of 
uplifting to, to take responsibility, isn't it? Than to just go through the actions of morality because you're afraid of being uh, despised or punished or ostracized. And it's, uh, it's, it's, and it's a, a kind of mature maturity, isn't it, where you you recognize or you see the value of morality. You know, like 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 in meditation, not it's, you just see the value of it. I'm not, you know, I'm just not. I'm not afraid of, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not keep being a monk because I'm afraid of. If I become a layman, I'll, I'll just, you know, get carried away with sex and violence and everything. Uh, that, that, and I, so I better stay here to kind of protect me from it all. But because I, I appreciate the the uh, the life, uh, and because I'm taking responsibility for my life in this within this structure. And then there's a kind of dignity and uh, self-respect generates from that. You feel, you begin to feel a sense of respect for yourself as a, as a human being, as a man in this society. Rather than a frightened creature that's, that's hiding away in a monastery. Like some people, that's how some people see it. This, can't face the world, so we come to this place, running away, because we can't, we're too pusillanimous to live <laughs> honestly and fully in the real world. <laughs> I think. Thank mm-hmm. you.